Welcome to Act in Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Today we bring you a conversation with Dylan Pommen and Alexander Salter. Pommen is a research fellow here at Acton Institute and serves as executive editor of our Journal of Markets and Morality. Salter is an associate professor of economics at Texas Tech University and research fellow of the university's Free Market Institute. In this episode, they discuss the relationship between money and liberty. In his article, The American Tradition of Ordered Liberty, Salter writes that the United States is an experiment both in revolutionary freedom and communal virtue. In other words, our public institutions reflect an ongoing quest for ordered liberty. Without understanding the sources of ordered liberty, we cannot come to grips with our own institutions. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Welcome to Acton Line. I'm Dylan Pommen, Research Fellow at the Acton Institute and Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality. I'm joined today by Alexander Salter, Associate Professor of Economics in the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University, Comparative Economics Research Fellow at TTU Free Market Institute, Associate Editor of the Journal of Private Enterprise, Senior Fellow at the Sound Money Project, and Senior Contributor at Young Voices. Alex, welcome to Acton Line. Dylan, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. So I'm really excited to have you here because we get to talk about some really fun and nerdy things. Uh, in particular, we want to talk about ordered liberty and sound money. And to kind of give a little teaser for our listeners, there's some things that are are more serious and close to home. There's been a lot of uh, you know COVID stimulus spending in the last year, and there's a lot of worries about um, public debt and financing. Uh, in that regard, um, there's been a decade now of uh, inflationary policy to deal with the 2008 financial crisis, but there's also interesting phenomenon like the rise of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. I, I would like to launch into that uh, by starting with reference to an essay you wrote uh, back in October for the American Institute for Economic Research on uh, the American tradition of ordered liberty, uh, in particular on ordered liberty and sound money. Um, could we start with uh, maybe some basic definitions? How would you define ordered liberty, sound money, and how do they relate to one another? Always good to start with definitions. So for ordered liberty, I would say in one sentence, it's liberty without license and order without obstruction. Those two things existing simultaneously. It means freedom, but not just absence from external constraint. It means the social space necessary for one to pursue one's end or vocation or calling. And at the same time, there also needs to be order in order to make that possible. But you don't want to go too far and have your entire society be regimented. It is not okay to structure your entire entire social order like a barracks. So on the one hand, you have the regimented society, which is stifling of liberty. And on the other hand, you have the libertine society, which does not respect order. So you need both of these for persons to reach their potential in community with each other. 
And this is actually something that relates to sound money as a basic social institution, because money, especially for a commercial society, is how we talk to each other in business spaces, in commercial spaces. One of my professors in graduate school said that money is the grammar of commerce. And in order for us to be able to communicate with each other, in order for us to be able to have mutually beneficial and respectful commercial dealings, there needs to be a common denominator in which we can express bids and asks, in which we can denominate our contracts. You need stability and predictability in the monetary unit. And so really sound money is an extension of the imperative of ordered liberty to the commercial sphere. It's arguably the single most important labor-saving technology that humanity has ever come up with, right? Think about how hard economic life would be if we couldn't transact using a common medium of exchange. Think about all the time and effort we would have to put in bartering. That would just be very difficult. and There would be no way for us to flourish like we can at our potential if we had to subject ourselves to that kind of a constraint. All right. Let me try to simplify it for a minute. How would what would be an example uh, of the opposite? What would what does unsound money look like in the real world? In the real world, unsound money can take multiple forms. It can be a currency that rapidly fluctuates in its purchasing power, such that you have no predictability in terms of what it's going to be worth on a day-to-day basis. It could be a monetary authority that imposes unjust burdens or obligations on a certain segment of the population in terms of financing other activities. There's a pretty good argument to make that the various bailouts in 2008 uh, that were partly assisted by the Federal Reserve were such a policy. More recently would be the various credit allocation policies the Federal Reserve has pursued in response to the COVID pandemic. These are all examples of the monetary authority who is supposed to uphold the common good of the nation as a whole, using its powers and prerogatives to advance the particular interest rather than the general interest. And that is not good for ordered liberty. That's not good for commercial flourishing. And frankly, that doesn't do justice for sense. So inflating the currency to help uh, too big to fail companies, for example, would be Uh, unsound monetary policy. Similar to that, although you don't necessarily need any explicit depreciation in money's purchasing power in order for things to go wrong. Mm -hmm. One of the big puzzles to many people was after the massive monetary policies and quantitative easing of 2008, why didn't we see hardly any inflation? Those policies were still an abuse of sound money. They still served the particular interest rather than the general interest. It's just that they showed up on margins other than the money in your wallet losing its purchasing power. Now, of course, price increases are starting to pick up because the broader money supply is going up. Okay, so you you to to get into this a little a little deeper, you dig into uh, in your essay uh, Russell Kirk's Roots of the American Order. This is a book he wrote, really uh, wonderful, uh, detailed, and very thick book. <laughs> Um, and you, you particularly high, highlight his distinction between what he calls the moral order and the civil order. So these are two kinds of order. Uh, what is the difference between these and, and how do they relate to sound money? Yeah, great question. Russell Kirk describes the difference between those things, the moral order and the civil order, as on the one hand, order in the soul, and on the other hand, order in the polity. So the former describes ourselves, our personhood, as our project, as that which we are called to develop. And civil or social order pertains to the social conditions that enable that to happen. So there's obviously a back and forth between these two things. You can't think about personal moral flourishing apart from the social conditions that enable it. And you can't think about a good society apart from the good persons who make up that society. So these are things that are mutually dependent upon each other. And again, I think that this is something that is directly relevant to sound money, 
because one of the things that I think we've learned since the Enlightenment, by the Enlightenment, I, of course, mean the Scottish and English Enlightenment, is that commerce can be a realm of human flourishing. Commerce can be a realm for the practice of the virtues. Commerce can be a means by which we commune with anonymous others. And so in order to make this work, you do need that commonality that allows us, allows us to communicate with, with each other, to speak to each other, to give and to take, not in a spirit of solely looking to maximize your own welfare, but in the sense of giving value for value and making sure our joint commercial enterprises flourish. I do well by doing good and you do well by doing good. That requires a sound monetary unit within which we can transact and make those sorts of bargains that are beneficial for you and me, the trading partners, as well as the polity as a whole. In, in a sense, then, sound money uh, enables that moral and civil order in the commercial realm. Right. I would say that sound money is one of the ways in the realm of commerce specifically that the moral order and the social order are brought into alignment. And it has more implications for uh, for areas of society beyond just business. Nonprofits need to budget. They need a sound monetary unit to make their plans. Families need to budget. They need a sound monetary unit to make their plans. And yet these are areas where we are perfectly comfortable uh, with the market logic, so to speak, not intruding. In fact, we get a little bit uncomfortable when we try and talk about the market logic yeah, penetrating into, into families, or into the nonprofit sector. But just because we don't want the market logic to subsume these things doesn't mean that we don't rely on basic commercial institutions for them to work. Sound money is relevant to all shared social enterprises. And so it's relevant to human flourishing as such. Right. So from Microsoft to the church bookstore. And everywhere in between. Yeah. Excellent. Um, okay. So, uh, Continuing with Kirk, uh, he claims uh, that the roots of American order run through four cities, Jerusalem, Athens, Rome, and London. Uh, what did he mean by that? And and why didn't he cite an American city like Philadelphia, where the Constitution uh, was written, or Boston, where the Tea Party happened, or New York, the, you know, the setting of Hamilton, uh, the hit musical? Uh, why these these four cities, three of which are, are ancient cities. Do I reveal myself to be an uncultured rube if I admit that I have neither seen nor listened to the Hamilton soundtrack? Oh, uh, well, I don't know. I don't know if you're an uncultured rube, but you're definitely missing out. I, I will say you're that. You're not the first person who's told me that. I've been holding out because I've heard that the uh, the historical inaccuracies are a bit glaring. But apparently, if it's if it's so good as art, maybe I'll have to look into it nonetheless. Oh, I mean, there there are historical inaccuracies and, and some of which, uh, you know, the writers admit to. Um, but it's actually I was I was impressed by the opposite, how much of things referenced. I'd be like, really? And then I'd like go and, you know, look it up and be like, wow, that, that really did happen. OK, um, so for a musical, I think it's surprisingly historically accurate, but uh, it doesn't mean that they don't bend uh, the details when they need to. Fair enough. Maybe I'll have to reconsider. Maybe I'll have to reconsider. So starting with uh, I'll actually start with your second question, which is why doesn't Russell Kirk discuss an American city? And the short answer is he actually does. Okay. He writes about these four cities converging in, and you even mentioned it, Philadelphia. Mm. Uh, it's just that in my essay, I didn't write about the convergence of Philadelphia because I hadn't gotten to it yet. But Kirk very much sees the American quest for ordered liberty, the distinctly American features of that, as taking the best intellectual, moral, aesthetic strains from Jerusalem, Athens, Rome, and London and converging it 
into the enterprise that we uh, ultimately took to govern ourselves in, that, in those fateful years in the country's early years. But I want to get back to the four cities and talk a little bit about what's really unique about them and how they inform the Western tradition as well as the American tradition. So when Russell Kirk talks about Jerusalem, he's obviously talking about uh, Judaism and Christianity. He's talking about what he calls the great leap in being that was perceived by the author of the Torah and the prophets and the authors of the other writings of the Bible and perceiving that there was a moral order above and beyond ourselves and they culminated in the absolute. And just because this being was absolutely transcendent does not mean that this being was also imminent, cared about us, called us to walk with him, to be in fellowship with him. And that sort of approach to divinity really lit the world on fire. And we simply cannot understand any of our inheritance without reference to the God of the Hebrew Bible. Moving beyond that, we have to talk a little bit about Athens. Here, Kirk is talking about the artistic genius of the Greek city-states, especially Athens, which during its... Uh, political heyday was always a little bit rowdy. We don't necessarily look to the Greeks for uh, political genius and lawful stability, but we do look to them as the inaugurators of our traditions and arts and letters. We look to them for philosophy. We look to them for worldly learning. They certainly influence us in that way. Rome is where we actually take our chief political inheritance from. The Roman Republic, Roman laws, the 12 tablets, the development of the Republic, these are sort of the animating principles that all of the statesmen of the founding generation were familiar with. And while they wanted to emulate, uh, while they wanted to emulate Athens in terms of their education and their shaping as human persons, it was definitely Rome that they wanted to emulate when they were framing their political constitutions. And lastly, of course, we have London, the 1688 settlement of the Glorious Revolution that resulted in a balance of power between uh, throne and parliament between king and nobility that really carved out a wide social space for ordinary persons and families to flourish. And the, the key insight here is that when power is divided and separated, that necessarily means that no one interest group or party can get everything they want. That requires us to think long term. That requires us to be okay with taking half a loaf. That inspires us to realize the spirit of compromise. And in that humility and restraint, that's when we can get life being truly dignified for the mass of ordinary citizens. Politics is no longer some grand enterprise that is played only by the great of the realm. Instead, it's something that concerns all of us qua citizens, something that we can participate in. And even if we choose not to, we at least have the assurance that politics will be more or less stable, that we can pursue our lives in family and community and flourish. So this might be a, a bit of a tangent, but it strikes me that uh, humility and restraint are not very prominent features of American politics today. Uh, how do we get from that synthesis of, uh, you know, these ancient and early modern traditions uh, in Philadelphia to, you know, where we are today with people lobbing virtual grenades at each other on Twitter? Yeah, I think uh, to say the least, humility and restraint does not characterize anything that we're seeing out of our governing authorities today. Uh, and that's very much to our detriment. I don't think that there's a monocausal explanation for what's happened to our politics. I do agree that something is wrong. I'm not yet persuaded that something is uniquely wrong in terms of things are as worse now as they ever have been, uh, especially if you go back and you read the campaign literature for some of our early elections in the nation's history, uh, you realize politics really was a contact sport. 
So it was then and it is now. Yeah, sometimes contact with pistols in an open field. Yes. <laughs> As in the case of Hamilton. Getting back to getting back to the great musical once again. That's right. Right. So we're not quite there yet, but I do think that we are at a low point in recent history. The one that I emphasize, because I think it's something that not enough people in the public square are themselves emphasizing, is we've just made the stakes of politics too high. We're just trying to do too much from Washington. Instead of having the debate of, for example, whether the government should be involved in healthcare or not, that's just one example. We take for granted that Washington either has to do it or nobody's going to do it. It's either going to be Washington, D.C. leading the charge or pure 100% market arrangements. But of course, there's a massive amount of institutional space between those two things. What about the state governments? What about city governments? What about friendly societies and civil society? When you try and make a single nation of 330 million people be governed from the center and raise the stakes of politics so that one political entity, the federal government, becomes responsible for more and more, you make it even more expensive and costly when you lose. which means that you have to ratchet up the hysteria. You have to ratchet up the partisanship. From your perspective, losing could mean the end of the game. And so you escalate, which means that your partisan rivals escalate, which means that we're caught in this arms race. And by definition, an arms race is the very antithesis of humility and restraint. And compromise. Yeah, and compromise. And so I think that before we can really have a politics of restraint, a politics of limits, and dare I say a politics of virtue, Uh, Once again, we have to take seriously the idea that, frankly, Washington is trying to do too much. Maybe Austin or Sacramento or whatever should be doing more. Maybe the city government should be doing more. We can have that debate. But definitely, we've made the stakes of politics too high by trying to do everything from the center. All right. Well, having covered some of these fundamentals then, uh, I'd like to to pivot again to the current events that I opened with. the U.S. Uh, has not been on the gold standard since 1971, what's known as the, the Nixon shock, uh, which actually had nothing to do with Watergate or anything like that. Uh, but it was taking the dollar off of the gold standard, uh, making it a, a true fiat currency. Um, and today, uh, due to worries over inflationary policy or just simply unsound monetary policy, especially since 2008, uh, but punctuated over the last year, uh, more and more people are turning to to cryptocurrencies, uh, especially Bitcoin. Um, it got some big name endorsements from people like Elon Musk, uh, and he has a loyal army of Twitter Twitter trolls and followers who have boosted his profile. Um, and some government officials have even recently kind of begrudgingly acknowledged that, well, uh, Bitcoin isn't just the the fad that we we thought it was going to be. Um, how does the philosophy of, of sound money, grounded in, in Russell Kirk's narrative of, of these pillars and these roots of American order, how does it help Christians in particular evaluate the moral and prudential issues at stake uh, in terms of current U.S. monetary policy and various alternatives like Bitcoin? Wow, there's a lot of moving parts there. There are, yeah. <laughs> I would say that advocates of sound money and people who view sound money not just in terms of economic practicality but as a moral enterprise – should look on Bitcoin with continued cautious optimism. I think its existence is a good thing. I'm happy to see it continuing to do well. I will be honest with you, when it was first a thing, I predicted it would go nowhere. I didn't pay much attention to it. Boy, was I wrong. (laughs) So I don't pretend to be an expert or anything. But one of the things that we need to recapture 
is this idea that we need to be free to innovate, to offer new services for payments, stores of value, for media of exchange, to create these things, to try new things, to offer them to the community and say, hey, here's what I came up with. Here's how I think it can help you. Maybe you can use it. And I think based on that metric, uh, Bitcoin, as well as a couple of the other more reputable altcoins, has proved its worth. It is being used by people as an investment, both as a store of value. It is being used to actually make payments. So there's an argument that in some limited contexts, it's serving as a medium of exchange. And to the extent that it provides a safe and secure payment and exchange system that's insulated from the vagaries of the dollar, that's a good thing. And so I don't think that we should look on Bitcoin or cryptocurrency as this esoteric thing that's necessarily a threat to the existing commercial order. I think we should look on it as one potential way among many that individual families, businesses, et cetera, can protect themselves from what might be overweening, uh, overweening excesses of authority on the part of the Federal Reserve and related organizations that are really trying to uh, enable the money supply to advance, if not partisan, then nonetheless political objectives. So let's take a step back uh, and and do a few more definitions then. Uh, what is Bitcoin and what is cryptocurrencies? How do they work and what makes them different from something like the dollar? Oh, goodness. Entire books have been spilled on this. I know. I'm not, not really throwing you softballs here. Right. I know, right? And, you know, I, again, I don't pretend to be an expert. But if I were explaining Bitcoin to somebody who had never heard of it before, I would say that it is a distributed anonymous payment system. Normally, when we make payments... Right? If I were to write you a check, that relies on the existence of a trusted third party. I bank with Bank of America. I want to write you, Dylan, a check. Mm-hmm. That is a liability moving from my account at Bank of America to you at whatever bank you are at. So we need at least one trusted third party to actually facilitate that payment, to facilitate that transaction. Bank of America, if we both bank there, or Bank of America plus the other counterparty, the financial institution that you bank with, Uh, if you bank with someone else. And so even though we're paying each other in a sort of decentralized spot market fashion, the actual processing mechanism for payments, getting the money from me to you, is comparatively centralized. Bitcoin, in contrast, is a decentralized payment system. All the information for who has what and who owes purchasing power in the form of Bitcoin to whom, what fractions of the Bitcoin, is distributed in a public ledger that's worked on simultaneously by all the computers that are basically on the network solving equations to try and, uh, on the one hand, mine new Bitcoin into supply, as well as process the transaction. So there's no single point of failure. The combination of anonymity plus distribution of the relevant uh, information over the entirety of the networks and computer systems that are making this payment system work, make it operate without any single hierarchical trusted financial intermediary, right? And so this detaching of the payment system from hierarchical centralized financial intermediaries really was an innovation in terms of how we can actually make payments and receive funds and basically conduct commerce without recourse to the traditional financial system. And that does afford a degree of freedom that really is promising. So it's sort of banking without banks. It's one of the functions of banking without banks, right? There's no necessarily borrowing short and lending long. There's no true financial intermediation. Instead, it's purely separating the payment system, getting payments from me to you, and the processing mechanism for doing that, except instead of top-down fashion, it's 100% bottom-up. 
So I'm curious then about the other side. Uh, so we've talked uh, a bit about Bitcoin, what it is, uh, why people are drawn to it. Um, but what's wrong with the U.S. dollar? I mean, isn't it doing fine? I mean, it, it's certainly not the Venezuelan dollar or peso or whatever they may use there. Um, why is anybody worried about current U.S. monetary policy? Should people be worried or is this overblown? I think people should be more worried than the uh, the modal treasury investors is worried, but not quite as worried as the modal Bitcoin enthusiasts. So I occupy somewhere uh, in, in the middle ground there. Okay. So let me be clear. I don't think that the dollar is going anywhere anytime soon. The dollar has amazing staying power in global financial markets. You've heard it said that it's the, the global reserve currency, and it is, right? There's always going to be a steady demand for it, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, demand for treasury debt, right? Federal government liabilities in the form of bonds, both short-term and longer-term, is, as far as we can tell right now, insatiable. So there's no real risk that a, at least in the short term, that ongoing fiscal troubles are going to precipitate a monetary crisis. So I don't think that the dollar is in bad shape as a currency in the short run. On the other hand, it's really hard not to notice that over the long term, the dollar might uh, is performing in certain ways that might make us skeptical of whether it's actually serving our interests qua citizens, as opposed to the interests of a more narrow financial or political elite. Since its inception, or not since the dollar's inception, but since the inception of the Federal Reserve System, the dollar has lost about 95% of its purchasing power. Wow. Now, inflation per se is not a bad thing, especially if it's low and predictable, but often inflation is not low and predictable. In fact, inflation has begotten, has gotten less predictable since the advent of the Federal Reserve System, and especially since, as you mentioned, President Nixon closed the gold window. So it's becoming harder to predict the future path of the price level, which means the future path of the purchasing power of money. Monetary policy by the Federal Reserve is becoming more discretionary. They're doing more and more things that don't qualify as traditional monetary policy and instead qualify, frankly, as fiscal policy by monetary means, using the printing press not to uh, maintain liquidity conditions, but to directly allocate resources, as we saw following the COVID-19 crisis. For these reasons, as well as for several others, I think we have a right to be interested in looking for alternatives in terms of storing our purchasing power over time, processing payments, and maybe even using different media of exchange. Now, the reason that that's very hard is because money has this classic network effect. The more people who use the dollar, the more valuable it is to you to use the dollar. And breaking that network is going to be really, really tough. In fact, nothing short of a uh, financial catastrophe could probably really break it. And I, I don't wish for that, and neither should you, frankly. But if things get a little bit rougher in the future, it doesn't hurt to have alternatives at our disposal, gold, Bitcoin, other kinds of things that might serve as substitutes in which we can transact to avoid the worst of dollar instability. So let's bring this uh, to more of a, a moral and even religious point of view. Uh, I think I think we covered some of the basics there of what's going on in terms of cryptocurrency and faith in the U.S. dollar. Uh, but how should Christians evaluate this sort of thing? You know, what where does faith and morality come in when it comes to uh, not simply investing, but evaluating uh, U.S. policy? How do we vote? What do we do with our money? Those sorts of things. Um, and how do they relate to, to current trends? 
And I and I should say I understand you're an economist and not a, not a moralist, but I'm I'm hoping that you'll draw from your economic ex- expertise uh, and and from your your personal faith. I am happy to try. So I do think that there is an argument on moral and theological grounds that monetary instability is per se unjust. Scripture tells us that depriving the worker of his wages is a sin that cries out to heaven. I think a similar way of thinking actually applies to inflation, especially as it gets larger and less predictable. Now, for a lot of people, especially the well-off, inflation isn't that big of a deal. If most of your savings are in assets that have a positive nominal rate of return, it's not very hard to go searching for yield that can compensate you for that inflation. So it's no big deal. What about people who are not so fortunate? What about people who have a large fraction of their wealth in cash? What about the unbanked? What about the people who are most vulnerable to financial turmoil? Right? Not necessarily because they have their assets tied up in the banking system. They don't. That's, that's uh, one of the sources of their difficulties. But in the sense of once inflation becomes larger and less predictable, that eats directly into their purchasing power. Pensioners who are on a nominal pension plan that don't see their rates of return adjusted for inflation. This is a takings. It's a redistribution of wealth from creditors to debtors. And I think that that's something that's per se objectionable, especially since it hurts people on the lowest end of the income distribution. In terms of uh, things other than inflation, because for the last 10 years, it wasn't inflation that was the big worry. The fact that we have a system for monetary policy now that basically allows the Federal Reserve's balance sheet to become arbitrarily large without creating inflation is really worrying. Because if the Fed's balance sheet can become who knows how large, it's up to $8 trillion now and growing, without generating inflation, that basically means the Fed can become a credit allocator and there's going to be no negative feedback loop pushing it to undo its behavior. Following the COVID crisis especially, we saw the Fed making direct loans to large corporations that had nothing to do with the financial system, to small to medium-sized businesses, and even to state and local governments that frankly had made a mess of their finances over decades. When the Federal Reserve allocates credit, it changes the allocation of a scarce resource, borrowed funds. It changes the pattern of allocated resources such that political insiders are favored and everybody else loses out. I would argue that's per se unjust and economically ineffective as well. There might be good political logic to these things in the sense that they satisfy various interest groups, but this is not at all something that we should accept. I think that the morality of sound money impels us, even if there's no large and variable inflation, to look on these practices with great skepticism and try and rein them in. So this brings up another issue. Uh which I think is a fascinating one. It was maybe more of a hot button issue five or 10 years ago, but it's always always ready to come back, and that's inequality. Uh, and it's interesting to me that, um, I, you know, I don't think you're, you're arguing this is the only cause, but uh, maybe a major overlooked cause of rising economic inequality, to the extent that, that is measurable, uh, has in fact been monetary policy rather than simply, you know, market economies. There is an argument to be made. Um, as, as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been any rigorous quantitative study of that. But at least the, the casual intuition that we have about the way that monetary policy works and the transmission mechanisms through which they work, especially since 2008, all the various quantitative easing programs, asset purchases are directly bolstering, first of all, the prices of those assets that are purchased that are largely dealt in by uh, large investors. 
once the liquidity finds its way into the financial system, there's an argument that it's going to boost equities markets. And last of all, it's going to spill over into markets for final real goods and services. So those parties, again, that are already fairly wealthy, already are fairly long on financial assets, they're going to be the people that experience the rising tide first. And that's, I think, why you've seen uh, equities markets in particular break several records over the past year, despite the fact that the economic recovery has only been picking up for a couple of months now. I think if you wanted to stretch it out as charitably as possible, you could say that the economic recovery really started last July, but most people didn't feel it that soon, right? I think that there's definitely a case to be made that financial and political insiders are doing better than they would be because of this unusual monetary policy than Main Street. And to the extent that you care about inequality for reasons of justice, which I think you should, I think that monetary policy is a plausible candidate contributing to that process. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I certainly have learned a lot, uh, and I hope our listeners have benefited from uh, your insights into monetary policy, ordered liberty, and uh, moral concerns of our present day. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dylan. I had a great time. God bless. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, we're acting line. I'm Gabriel Zsa Zsa.